welcome to episode 273 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I think by this point, do we have what we might call like the eternal, or at least until God takes us to be with him, series? We're just not going to stop on this. I know we right. keep like reintroducing it, but yeah, can th- we this just, is just the, it? This is just the podcast now. Yeah. We're this just is, not going to change the it. name. Can't stop, won't stop. Right. So we're going to talk about the scriptures as the rule of faith and practice, which I'm, I'm super stoked about. In some ways, it's the culmination of a little bit of... I would say like technical theology, but also like, of course, bring in something that is more practical. So it's going to get super good. I mean, actually this already is super good, but it's going to get even better. And so as we set that up, let's talk a little bit about affirmations and affirmations because we decided in our very epic and long (laughs) pre-meeting that we had before we started recording that we're just going to keep it positive today because yes. we think, you know, sometimes there's enough negativity in our world. And of course, I like a good denial as much as the next person, but sometimes it's really just great to focus on all of the blessings. So let's do exactly that. What are you affirming with on this episode? So I'm affirming, uh, nobody's going to be surprised by this. I'm affirming Reform Systematic Theology, Volume 1 by Joel Beakey. Uh, I'm only four chapters into it because it is a hefty tome. But uh, I'm really, really enjoying it. He writes with such a clear, straightforward style um, that it's really easy to kind of get your head around it. You can move through it relatively quickly. Um, It's nice because a lot of systematic theologies try to sort of like find this golden mean. So they they kind of like, you know, here's a position, here's a position. And then like the sweet spot is somewhere right in the middle. And Joel Beakey's just like, the reform position is the right position, so just deal with it. So he's just very direct <laughs> and very straightforward. And um, yeah, I'm just really enjoying it. So you can pick it up. The first three volumes are out. Uh, I think that the plan is for the fourth volume to come out sometime. I thought it was the summer of this year, but it might not be. Um, so don't quote me on that. Don't send Joel angry emails because I told you it was coming out in the summer. But it uh, should be out soon. And it's really great. And it has like the, the chapters end with like a hymn. So there's a hymn um, oh, that's pulled like that. that sort of has a theme that's related to the chapter and there's some discussion questions. So if you were going to be doing a book club or something like that, uh, you could even sing the hymn together at the end of the session and you could uh, run through the, the discussion questions. Or if you're just wanting to kind of dig a little bit deeper, think a little bit more specifically, he kind of guides you through some of those questions uh, to kind of reflect on what you've read. Love it. That's almost like a setup, right? Like it's so reformed that a systematic theology, each chapter would end with a hymn. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. And it's just, it's so refreshing to just read a straightforward exposition of the scriptures. Um, and, and, you know, we've had our fair share of let's bash on Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. One thing that is very strong about Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is that it is, just littered with scripture references everywhere. Um, the the sure. weak part of that is that he's not really doing systematic theology. He's just kind of like proof texting his way through the doctrines. So Joel Beakey uh, is doing more classically systematic theology, 
but I'd say he probably has as many scripture references to support his actual systematic theology as um, as Grudem does in his. So it's just a good. It's it's more technical. It's more difficult, and it's a heck of a lot longer. Um, so it's harder to get through. But it is it is a it is a definitely approachable. I think anyone who's graduated from high school who has uh, you know like a, a high school freshman college level reading uh, would be able to make it their way through this without much problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can affirm that. I've read some, just some excerpts, but I was with you a couple of weeks ago. You had the physical copy. I saw it and it's definitely a doorstop. I mean, this it thing is. is like a beast, Yeah. but that to me says, that's the kind of thing you want to grab and add to your library because you know that that'll just continue to pay dividends. It seems like it's accessible as a resource, which yeah. really, if you're getting like a systematic text, you want to hold on to that sucker as something that you're going to continue to reference and use as either yeah. in your own personal study or when you're teaching, or I know we have this all the time. You come to like an idea and you think, you know what? I want to get some reference and perspective on that. Seems like Jay Beak has got, you know, a really good resource there for that exact thing. Yeah. Yeah. You love coming (laughs) up with nicknames for people. You love it. It's just like you absolutely love it. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's, it's, I've used it multiple times, even though this is my first pass through. I've used it, you know, when I'm preparing for an episode or when I'm trying to write an article or, or whatever to just sort of pull it up and, and take a look at what it has to say about a particular topic. Um, right. It's helpful, too, because he, you know, he's quoting a wide variety of sources, but his bread and butter for his sort of like historical citations are definitely more in line with the classic reform sources. Um, so it's, you know, you, you read a good book like this. And one of the goals is it sort of like pushes you into other books through the footnotes and through the right references. On. And this is going to push you much further towards classic reformed systematic theology, classic sources, confessions, where even someone like Mike Horton, who we all know how much I love Mike Horton's writing, his is a much broader tradition that he's drawing from, um, I think largely because of the audience he was trying to trying to go for. Um, so this is just, it's there's nothing that I find to be critical of so far in this book, which is pretty rare. I'm a pretty critical reader. So yeah, check it out. Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 1. Uh, the title or the subtitle is Revelation in God. So each book has two, uh, two loci that it's going to be going through in kind of a classic formula. Listen, that's high praise. And then once you order it and it's delivered to you, you can thank your delivery person for hefting that from like the truck <laughs> to your yeah. door. Yeah, you could use you could do like like um, bench press with it. You get one volume in each hand. <laughs> if you've got really good balance, you could put two volumes in each hand. You'd be getting some fat gains there. All fat gains. <laughs> I don't even know if that's the right term. I think it probably is. Listen, I love it. And so sometimes this, I mean, everybody should get an insight in. Here's some insight inside baseball. So sometimes I'm prepared with something that I want to say in response to the conversation we're having, <laughs> but that just totally derailed me. I'll be honest with you. I love it. <laughs> I was going to say something like cut to Paul talking about like, you know, de- demanding something like constraining and yeah. training your physical body is of some worthwhile, but godliness is like, you know, the ultimate. And I was like, oh, here we're hitting both. And then you said fat gains. Yeah. And, and then the, like, mes- the message translation comes along as like physical <laughs> training is okay, but godliness is fat gains. That's the 2022 <laughs> version. Listen, that was actually really, really good. And the way that you said that sounded like, who's that dude, that uh, like famous actor who has like that weird cadence? Oh my goodness. I've just. There's like a lot of people that that's No, no, I, t- I, I totally. Christopher, Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken. Yes. I was like, 
godliness has its advantages. <laughs> the like listener the cannot see the face that's in front of me and the little the little dance that Jesse did along with that cadence. <laughs> let's get let's get off of this and get on to something else. What are you affirming this week? Fair enough. That was a good segue. So I think at this point I'm contractually obligated because I'd like to think that I somehow tried to like insert a little bit of mathematics into our podcast from time to time. You, but when you were talking about this balanced approach to systematic theology, you talked about how sometimes people take this like golden mean. So I just want to say that that is technically 1.618 in case anybody's keeping track at home. I'm obligated to say that. And so <laughs> in addition, my affirmation that I'm affirming with this week is a little bit on the mathematics scale, but I say that only because I actually don't want to scare people away. I actually am afraid that I've affirmed this before, but given the world in which we live, and I would say like, I'm going to make this argument that all of us actually speak in quantitative terms and we're comfortable with this. We like to quantitate, if I can use it that way, stuff. So I'm affirming with this book that I think, given everything that's happening in our world, everything we're trying to explain is super helpful. It's very approachable. I actually think that even if you do not love mathematics, this is worth picking up. The book is called Naked Statistics, Stripping the Dread from Data. It's by Charles Wheland. Charles Wheland actually has like a whole series of books where he tries to take like a topic in finance or mathematics and just bring it down to like its roots so that it's like approachable because I think I have this argument that, or this theory, this hypothesis that I think everybody actually appreciates and can understand topics that are of like a quantitative nature, but depending on like how you learn them or what kind of teacher you had, you might be actually turned off by them. Yeah. But I think everybody has a mind in some ways to embrace these. And so this book, Naked Statistics is a really great way because so much right now is being reported on so many things. Yeah. This is, and we're about to talk about like rule of the scriptures for faith and practice in life. This to me is like a great way to try to understand when you read an article and somebody reports on something, how do you understand that thing? And is it reasonable what they're saying? So this is like a great introduction to that. And maybe it sounds really lofty. It's not. This is like a great way. I, I would encourage anybody to read this book. Charles Wheland is an excellent, excellent author. Nice. Yeah, I, I like those kinds of books that sort of like make you think about reality a little bit differently because of the way mathematics works. So I'll check that out. It sounds like a fun yeah, book. This is like, well, here's the thing about this book is it's basically like he talks about like a bunch of examples. So you're going to learn about a little bit of like he sneaks in like these techniques, like how to understand. But to me, this is a bit like learning to finally understand a foreign language. Yeah. So you're like, oh, I know what that means. Or, oh, when I read this, this figure, I can understand maybe how it was derived or what it actually intimates. Yeah. So it's really, I think, empowering. And I think, again, a lot of people get turned off by numbers or language because I think it's it's far above them. And that's really not the case. Like there's almost a common grace in God giving us numbers as a way to like across cultures, languages, lifestyles to understand something about the way the world actually is. And so I think, again, like Charles Whelan does a really good job of introducing us yeah. to like these basic concepts and making us feel appreciated in them and understand them in a way that we maybe never thought we could. Nice. Nice. Hit, hit me with that title one more time. It's Naked Statistics. <laughs> I'm pausing to bring like all the effect. Naked Statistics stripping the data from, or sorry, stripping the dread from data, not stripping data. You don't want to do that. So <laughs> um, you, you want to use that. But he actually has a whole series. I think is like Naked Money 
and naked finance. So like th- the whole point of it is to like pull away like all the pretense because yeah. there's a lot of pretense in this stuff. Get rid of that nonsense. Let's just talk about why these concepts are so important to us. And again, I just draw that because you used a uh, golden mean basically or golden average. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was, it was beautiful. So speaking again of averages, things that are golden approaches to life and to rubrics, we're moving ourselves along in this whole series, which is never ending, but we're arriving at this idea of like, what is the scriptures? When we talk about the scriptures and then we say that like, well, there's, we talked about infallibility and inerrancy. And then how does that actually translate into Monday morning or Tuesday morning or Friday evening theology? What does it actually mean? Yeah. And so most of those who have gone before us in their foreign faith have been really outspoken about the scriptures as the rule of faith and practice. It's been codified and in some ways immoralized in, confessions. And so we should really just talk about then, what does that actually mean? If we're going to talk about the scriptures as this thing that actually guides life, so many people will speak about ideologies or theologies or ideas that somehow have changed who they are and direct the behavior that they undertake. But does the scripture stand apart in this way? Or is it merely something that we can give intellectual assent to? Now, of course, like I'm setting it up, but Let's talk about that. Yeah, and you know this is really important um, for a number of reasons, but namely because I think you know our our primary audience for this podcast is is somewhat something like the uh, the people who used to be the young, restless, and reformed, and now are not quite as young and hopefully a bit less restless and ideally a bit more reformed. So, so most of us who came out of that milieu or were involved in that milieu in some way. We, we came to faith, uh, or, or we came into the Reformed faith, the beginning of the Reformed faith, with this concept of the scriptures that I think either lend itself to a form of antinomianism, where like, sure. yeah, like justification was all that we ever talked about. And if you were justified, then like that was all that mattered. And we, we didn't really talk about what else that meant. In the best scenario, it was like the scripture is is the way that we figure out how to get out of hell with justification. Right. And then maybe it has some like helpful guidelines for us to think about what to do after that. Um, in the worst construction, you have full-on antinomianism where we don't have to do anything. It's it's literally there's no requirements or restrictions or or regulations that a Christian is bound to. On the other hand, there was also a movement of sort of hyperlegalism, right? Where the scripture uh, is not only the way we find out about justification, but it's how we find these these minuscule micromanaging ways that the scriptures speak to every single particular instance of life. And and in, if you get it wrong, then you are at you know at risk of losing your salvation. Even in right. some reformed circles, that kind of hyperlegalism causes and we we've I mean I'll I'll name names like people like Paul Washer I think fall into this category where you beat up on the sheep so bad and you you get them to question their salvation so bad in an attempt to kind of um get the the goats in the crowd to realize they're goats you start getting the sheep in the crowd to wonder if they're actually sheep and you kind of bruise the flock that way Right. So, so there's those kind of two competing approaches. And I think for those of us who kind of came up in this reformed milieu, 
we didn't realize that neither of those approaches is actually the right approach. And the correct approach isn't just sort of like, don't be too much of an antinomianism and don't be too much of a legalist, but somehow find that pathway in the middle where like you're in the sweet spot. The reality is that both of those approaches are, are completely wrong approaches to the scripture, right? The scripture is not... Uh, the way that we understand what things we have to do to know and understand that we're saved or to become saved. It's also not just like this loose guideline that once we're saved, like we, we probably should do this because like this is the best, this is like God's best, but like if you don't meet up to that, that's okay too. <laughs> the right. reality of what the Reformed confessions talk about is wrapped up in this idea that the scriptures are the rule of faith and practice. And what is meant by that is not either of those two extremes, but is something closer to the idea that the scriptures give us a picture of what the perfect obedience looks like, right? Right We go back to the Garden of Eden and what Adam was required to do in order to merit salvation according to the covenant of works was to live a life of perfect perpetual obedience. And he failed. And so Christ comes in the covenant of grace, and he succeeds at living this life of perfect, perpetual obedience. But that's not the end of it, because he had this rule of life and practice that he lived his life according to. And so then he calls his people who are uh, originally created in the image of God and then are recreated into the image of Christ specifically to walk that same path after him, not out of um, some sort of slavish obligation. Right. That's why Paul talks about how we're no longer under the law. It's not that the law doesn't right. apply to us. It's that we're no longer under the law. Like literally the law is no longer our slave master. It's no longer our taskmaster. It's no longer the judge and jury against us. Now it is this path that we walk and we walk in that path unto sanctification and unto glorification and ultimately unto final salvation. I know Scott Clark just had an aneurysm that I said final salvation. <laughs> Hang in there with me. <laughs> that is what we're talking about when we say that the scripture is the rule of faith and practice is simply put, it teaches us what Jesus did and we're right called on. to live like Jesus. That that's, I mean, we could end the episode right there and we'd have said everything we need to say. Of course, we're not going to, cause we've got time to fill. So we're going to elaborate. <laughs> but if, if all you take away from this is that the, for the Christian, right? We'll, we'll have to talk about the uses of the law and we'll do that in a different episode, but for the Christian, sure. the moral law and the, the, that's presented in scripture as the rule of faith and practice, that moral law ultimately points us to what it means to look and live and love like Jesus did. And that's right. what we're called to do, right? Though, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? God, God uh, foreknew us and just predestined us and justified us for the purpose that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that's the point mm-hmm. of it. That's what we're talking about when we talk about scripture as the rule of faith and practice. Right. That's really great. Uh, I mean, I want to like come alongside that because like, I think some might hear you saying like, well, listen, I hear that so much in like modern evangelicalism, this like kind of cliche sense, like we just need to become like Jesus and the scriptures give us this, like, have you heard this before? Like uh, instruction manual, like, as if like, it's the same thing that's in like your car glove box. Like probably if you're like me, never consult to like understand like how to operate the thing that you've been given. So it is that, but it's also like, of course, more than that. Right. And that's like, how do we kind of wrap our minds and our actions and our spirituality around that reality? So like, this is where I think in terms of the fact that we're like reformed in the podcast is reformed that like we have like a distinct advantage here in some sense, because like this principle of like sola scriptura, 
we've already talked about scripture being like the only infallible rule of faith for the church, but that's because the word of God is this only, it's the only thing. It's like the Theonostros. It's like the actual God breathed thing. It's special revelation that we possess today. And there is nothing that supersedes it. So I think in my own mind, the best part of this is emphasizing that this is the real rule. This is the real instruction. And I understand that like oftentimes we hear the word rule. It's like, it is a four letter word, but it's also like, I mean that in a figurative sense, that it's also like totally pejorative because for the most part, we are reticent or reluctant to undertake rulings that do not comport with how we actually feel or what we think is advantageous to us. It's easy to obey a rule where we think, yeah, I'm down with that. And that's exactly the way that I want to be. But when we talk about this idea that the scripture is above us, there's just no higher court to which we can appeal for faith right. and practice. For there's like nowhere else besides the scriptures where we can surely find God's voice today. So like that old cliche of like, if you want to hear God's voice, just read your Bible out loud. <laughs> like I say that tongue in cheek, but it's also true. Yeah. Right? And that's what we're really after. And if that's true, then it means that like contained within the scriptures is actually everything we need. What's outside of the scriptures is everything we don't need. Right. And so I, I often, if somebody's looking for something that's better than maybe my voice, maybe not necessarily your voice, but at least my voice on this topic, I go a lot of times to Thomas Boston in his works, volume one, you're going to find a lot of this articulated, but I, all this is all to say, this is literally, this is all to respond to one thing that you said, which was really great. And that is, I think the way that we can kind of like rebrand this, so to speak, is what Thomas Boston many years ago already had on point, which is to say that you and I are not saying anything that's new. And that was, he talked about the scriptures are the rule to direct us to how we may glorify and enjoy God. Right. And I love that because that's the right emphasis. And that's what I think like you were kind of like pulling out. It's, it's not this like way of like, here's a list of things to do. That somehow when you're in a lineup, somebody's going to direct their attention to you and say, oh yeah, that's a Christian. Because like I've somehow found this language of things that was like applied to their lives. But that the scriptures are about how we might live life in abundance, both here and in the one to come. But perhaps more importantly, this is direction of how to enjoy God. That he gives us everything that we need to have a relationship with him, or at least to describe the relationship that he has secured for us in him and that we might enjoy him now. So this is like a text for here's how to have, oh my gosh, I'm going to reappropriate something. Here's how to have your best life now, (laughs) but not in the sense that you get everything you want, right? but in the sense that like you are in full communion with God as you actually encounter difficulties, stress, temptation, and suffering. Here is how you have that now because God has disclosed that to you in his goodness. Right. So I think I think it's important when we start to talk about this topic to sort of frame it correctly too, because when we talk about scripture as the rule of faith and practice, that sounds so dry. Like it sounds so like <laughs> yeah. clinical. So right. I want to read the, I want to read, um, sometimes I think it's helpful to read the Westminster Shorter Catechism and then contrast it with what the Westminster Larger Catechism has. And the reason I, the reason is that because the, the original intention was the Westminster Shorter Catechism was more or less kind of like the layperson's catechism. It was designed primarily for fathers to use in instructing their their families, their children, helping their wife understand the faith, themselves helping them understand the faith. The larger catechism 
was more for um, advanced, uh, sort of advanced education. So it was it was more what the the ministers turned to as sort of their index of the faith. And so you see in the larger catechism, there tends to be more clinical, technical language, and the shorter catechism tends to be more uh, distilled down for the person sitting in the pew. So here's how the question reads in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, and the in the Larger Catechism, it's question three. It says, what is the word of God? The answer is the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience, right? So very technical, very clinical. When you read the parallel question in the shorter catechism, it says, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? And it says the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So so when we think of the rule of faith and practice, we shouldn't be thinking of it like you're saying, like as a technical manual. It would be something, this is going to sound a little weird, and I don't actually know anybody who did this or has done this. I'm sure somebody has. But it would be like if a guy began dating a girl, and as he got to know her, he jotted down little notes in like a little right. notebook about the things she likes, the places she likes to go, what her favorite Super flowers creepy. are. Right? It's, it sounds creepy, but like it would be like if you had that little that little notebook, the little manual of things that helped you to love that girl well and to honor her well and to enjoy your relationship well, right? Because if a guy thinks that a girl's eyes are blue and he makes a comment about her beautiful blue eyes over the phone and she actually has brown eyes, that's not going to be a relationship that probably goes very far, right? So I think if we think of it more along the lines of the way the, the shorter catechism presents it, that it's this, it's this rule or it's this uh, rule that directs us how we glorify God in our worship, right? Glorify and enjoy. And in the catechism, right. glorify usually lines up to things that we believe, and enjoy usually lines up to the, the way that we behave. And you can see that because in the larger catechism, it's characterized as um, faith and obedience, right? So it's it's faith. So the Bible teaches us it's the rule of faith. It's the measure by which our faith must be compared. And it's also the rule of our obedience. So it's the the measure that drives our performance. It drives our, uh, our life, our works. If we can hold those two things up, then what we see is that in reference to the scriptures, it gives us everything we need in order to uh, come to God in order to be made right, right with God, and then in order to live rightly with God. It's being made right with God, and it's living rightly with God. It's those two things combined. What the scripture doesn't do is teach us how to change the oil in our car, or how to produce a podcast, like the technical elements of a podcast, or how to make the bed. It has something to say about how we ought to go about doing all of those things in terms of the attitudes we should have and the the diligence right. we should have, but it doesn't give us a technical manual for all of those things. It really is restricted to those two elements. How do we come to God and and get right with God? through faith and how do we live rightly once we have come to God and through faith be, been justified. If we can get those two things in place and understand that that's what the scripture is teaching us about, then we go a lot further than sometimes you see people who have these weird squirrely ideas that like, like we have to come to the scripture to understand exactly how to set up government, exactly how to set right. up our, our civil government right. or exactly how we are to run 
every single element of our household, right down to who, what kinds of jobs we have. You know, the classic example is like the college kid who wants the Bible to tell them who they should marry. So they kind of pour over right. scripture like it's this code book that's going to tell them which, whether they should marry Sally or whether they should marry Susie. And and it's just not what the Bible is for. It's not there. It doesn't mean it doesn't speak to those things in a, a different kind of sense. And the, the analogy I've used in the past is in terms of the scriptures, sometimes we come to it thinking it's like a GPS, right? Drive 50 feet forward, turn right, you know, drive two miles and then turn left and then your destination will be on the right, right? That's not how the Bible typically works in, in application. It's much more like a compass that you you use to orient you in the right direction. And as right long on. as you're oriented in the right direction, you're being obedient, that is how the Bible is going to direct your life. Right. And incidentally, that's what we should expect of a book that we're saying has transcendent wisdom, right? Like that yeah. we wouldn't expect it to like enumerate every possible circumstance. Right. I actually think that that is the great power and is a manifestation right. of the fact that God is displaying his glory, his transcendent nature over us, and then articulating that into something that is finite. Because when we get to that point, what we're basically saying is this book is our eternal contemporary. It's our eternal contemporary because it comes not because we worship the book itself or the words right. or the pages in which it's written, but because we understand the source from which it comes. And so this informs all areas of life. So it's not unfair to say like the Bible tells you how to eat pizza well, right? but like it also tells you like what is necessary for salvation. Right. And like there, there is something behind all of those things. And this, again, I would say is like a unique emphasis or like highlighting of the reformed tradition, because when we get to this idea of like sola scriptura, it leads us to this belief that there is like as a doctrine, biblical sufficiency. So to right. say that the scripture is sufficient to say that the Bible contains all everything that we need for determining what we must believe and how we are to live before God, which is all I'm doing is summarizing what you just said. This is actually really <laughs> bad podcasting in that sense. But like the scripture, of course, must be interpreted if we're to understand what we what we are to believe and how we are to act. But the sufficiency of the scripture indicates that we need no other source of special revelation right. for faith and life in addition to the Bible. So by that definition, you can cut out like every cult that says right. like there's something that needs to be added to this thing. So if we go back to like that traditional text, which we quoted already before, like 2 Timothy 3.16, which we probably would be, you know, remiss to at least reference here in terms of like the topic at hand. All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that we that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here's what I understand with that particular sentence in light of what we're talking about. The scripture in its totality is all that we need so that we will be completely prepared to serve God. And a good work is anything that is pleasing to God. So this text actually covers everything from determining sound doctrine to knowing the deeds that the Lord requires of us as proof of our faith in him. And right. there you can go right to James 2, where James enumerates, talks about, articulates, like goes into this deep understanding of what it means to have faith and works that they being compatible with each other, that of course there must be some kind of outworking to demonstrate that the faith is exactly extant and existent and real. So being equipped for every good work requires understanding the doctrinal foundations of a God pleasing actions and the actions themselves. And that's everything that you just said. So I actually fear that all I just said was actually recapitulation. It's okay. <laughs> what you it's all about. good. 
<laughs> so one one other kind of sort of qualifying or clarifying remark I want to make too is I think there are times where guys like us who are concerned with the historic testimony of the church, we're interested in the confessions, we want to understand the confessions as having some sort of authority in our life, right? Right. Um, we treat, sometimes we're in danger of treating those confessions as like, a constraint on the scriptures that like the, this, this confessions place boundaries on the scriptures, boundaries on what our understanding of the scripture can be. And that's true from a certain perspective. But what we have to realize is that even in, even in traditions that swear um, some sort of formal fidelity to a confession, right? A, a, a minister in the OPC or PCA or in the RCA is going to come forward at their ordination and they're going to they're going to swear an oath to uphold the theology of the confession. And they, there's a variety of phrases that are used in those ceremonies to get at that. But at the, the core of it, they're coming forward and they're saying this doc, this system of doctrine is what I'm swearing that I will teach and right. no other system of doctrine. Even in that act, though, they are not therefore saying that the confessions are now a constraint on the scripture. What they're saying, more or less, is that this is what the scripture teaches, and I swear to only teach what the scripture teaches. And right. that teaching is found in this body of doctrine. This this confession, this catechism, this document that I'm agreeing is true and faithful and appropriately interpreting scripture. I'm going to teach this. And I want to read out of the—this is chapter 31 of the Westminster uh, Confession and its uh, synods and councils. And this is, I think this is really interesting, um, is it says all synods, this is section three, all synods or councils since the apostles times, whether general or particular may err and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. And so we'll often say on this, you know, on this podcast, or I'll say in a conversation online, um, you know, I'll point to the Nicene Creed, right? Let's say I'm having a debate with someone who's trying to defend EFS, and I'll point to the Nicene Creed, and I'll say right there where it says, very God of very God, that phrase right there, that's what excludes EFS because right. of reasons, right? I don't want to get into a whole EFS episode because that'll be the episode. But that that right there, that clause. And what the response to me sometimes is, is like, yeah, but that's not the Bible. And I'm like, well, yeah, of course it's not the Bible, but I'm not going to reinvent the wheel every time I have a conversation. This is a faithful summary, but I have to be careful because it's very easy. And I've fallen into this before and I've had to be reminded by men in my life who, who see me doing this. It's very easy to sort of practically make the Nicene creed, the rule of faith instead of the Bible, the rule of faith, which the Nicene creed faithfully expresses. I make the Nicene creed, the rule of faith or the Westminster shorter catechism, the rule of faith or whatever. And everybody has a tendency to do this, right? Everybody has a tendency to make their own preferred interpretation, whether it's their own private interpretation or some sort of right. external confession that they subscribe to or they think is really great. There's a temptation to make that the rule of faith and practice. But across the board, the Reformed confessions say, don't do that, right? The scripture is the only rule of faith and practice. So Amen. we're not saying when we go to a confession that the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession or whatever, we're not saying that is the rule of faith and practice. We're not even really saying that is, I, although they use the framing and the wording of subordinate standards, they're, they're not constructing a new rule of faith that is somehow subsumed in there. And then on the flip side, 
the other element of that is that if someone is con- trying to constrain you by terms that are not, I don't mean terms like words, but like terms like terms and conditions that are not rooted and grounded and actually expressed and present in the scripture by either explicitly or by way of good and necessary consequence, then that's not legitimate either. So that right that's on. the legalism that we were talking about earlier is when, when, when someone approaches the Bible from a legalistic perspective, it's not generally the case that they're interpreting the Bible faithfully and just applying it really strictly. That's, that's not legalism, right? I've been accused of legalism because I'm, I'm a hundred percent opposed to images of Jesus, right? I get accused of legalism on a regular basis for that. I got accused of legalism because I said, I think that the Westminster standards and their interpretation of the second commandment or of the uh, sixth commandment, I think that that places a moral obligation on Christians to take advantage of vaccines and to use masks. I think that's what the Bible teaches about those subjects. So it's not legalism for me to say that, I might be wrong that that's what the Bible teaches. That could be wrong. It's not legalism if my theology is coming from and drawn from the scripture. Where it becomes right legalism on. is when we start to introduce these other things outside of scripture that sort of fence off the, the, the rules in scripture, right? If, if I'm not allowed to do images of Jesus because that's what the Bible prohibits in the second commandment or partially what, what is prohibited in the second commandment. And so I say, well... So we're also going to not do any pictures of the apostles because the apostles, people right, might look exactly. at that and think it's Jesus. So we're not going to even do pictures of the apostles. And in fact, we're not going to have any pictures of any human person uh, because they might, someone might think that that's Jesus. And so we're not going to do that. That's legalism. That's un, that's unbiblical fencing of the law, right? That's what the Pharisees were predominantly right. doing. So it's important for us to get that concept of what not only what it means for the Bible to be the rule of faith and practice, but then actually what is that rule? What is that boundary marker between what is the rule and what's not? And the boundary marker is if it comes from the scriptures and it's it's present in the scripture by way of good and necessary consequence or explicit command or prohibition, that is what is the rule of faith and practice. Right. I think that that's right on. Like, can we do a little rabbit hole for a second? It's like related to this topic, but not exactly maybe on point with please do okay all right here we go so i'm going to just bounce off of what you said for just a second and that is i actually think that the confessions and the creeds do way more good than any harm in their abuse and i again i know i've received this criticism myself that is when you bring them to bear let's say in a conversation or in a more extreme sense in an argument people will say well that's not the bible and i think almost almost always somebody who's using the confessions recognizes, yes, of course, I know that I'm not using the Bible, but what you said was right on. This is a faithful representation. I actually think the reason why they do more good than harm is because for the modern kind of a conventional average, maybe normative evangelical, there is no rubric. There is no distillation of what the actual, the Bible actually teaches as the rule of life and faith and practice so much so that they just get lost in a wash of this data. And so like the great beauty to me is that these guys, these divines who set forward in a very systematic way, these confessions very clearly pointed to like these proof texts as if to say, like, if you don't believe us, here's all the reference that we drew from, right? Go and look for yourselves. You are reasonable people go and reason from the scriptures to see if what we're saying is true or not. So when we talk about catechesis 
or again, like the confessions, this is like, I think a method of, and I don't mean this pejoratively, like properly indoctrinating ourselves according to the reality, which God has given to us. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, this is a way that I think, can we just be honest? Like the, the Bible is a full book. It's a yeah. full disclosure. There's a lot of information and data in there. And so like, we ought to try to familiarize ourselves, which is, I think a part of what we're talking about here, this muscle memory of getting a sense for what does the Bible teach and any resource that we can use that is good and favorable and is a realistic and appropriate representation of that, a faithful manifestation or summation of everything that's in there. We ought to use that. That is not to our detriment. That is to our good, especially when that resource points us back to the scriptures right. and propels us to go back into them in more detail as a situation arises. But I can't tell you how many conversations I've had or even people that I've interacted with, with different denominations who have decided to go like in a different direction, perhaps for well-intentioned reasons to say, we want to keep things loose. And this is, we want to like try to be like more flexible or reasonable in our approach. Right. And that what they found is that as situations arise, there are no bearing points anymore. There's no way to try to understand because it hasn't been particularly defined. And so I think we understand or we're saying is that the scripture does give us particular definition of things that it is clear and that it actually references itself as a being the clear authority. And we all just ought to lean into that. Not as a way of saying like, listen, it's just nice to have rules, but in a way of saying, isn't it nice to have somebody say to you, this is the way things ought to be. Yeah. And like there is freedom in that to be undistracted by things which are of a lesser quality, lesser quantity, lesser standards. It is such an amazing blessing to have the scriptures both give clarity, but also give that clarity in power. Yeah. That there is like authority coming through that. There is a way in which to live life and understand things. And again, this is the beauty of it, that it is general enough to be applicable to all areas of life and specific enough to give us like the proper predetermined absolutely accurate within the proper bounds and structure on things like salvation. I actually think this is what, like, I think actually it was Dallas Willard, who I'm not necessarily a huge fan of in all contexts, but said something like, I can't believe in a savior who's not as intelligent as I am. And when I look at the scriptures and I see the way in which it can be applied and which God has made it to apply to our lives in a way that's like particular and yes, also general, like we're talking about, that is like pure genius loved ones. Yeah. Like there, there's nothing that there's nothing that supersedes the kind of instruction and the kind of direction and the kind of um, knowledge that we find in the scriptures. Nothing, yeah. nothing compares to it. Yeah. And like every other worldview is lesser than this. It's always trying. It's either like too far one way or the other. And in the Bible, we find like everything that we actually need. Yeah. I fear that I'm coming across at this point as like super cliche. No, <laughs> but no, like, not at but all. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's like, you can't, th- this is like, I just want to grab everybody and say like, this is actually the real instruction for life. It's, it's not the cliche of like, again, like, the book that you get when you buy some kind of good or service that tells you how to operate it. It's so much more than that. Yeah. And yet it's also so general that whether again, you're going for a walk with a neighbor or whether you're trying to understand how to appreciate the Lord's day and what it means requires of you, or whether it's again, like how to eat sushi within everything in the Bible, we find all of the instructions that we actually need to love God, to enjoy God and to be saved because of what he's done. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to read, um, you know, you, you said the keyword clarity. So I'll, I'll move on to sort of another element of the scriptures that really is, it's distinct, but can't be totally separated from this. 
And so um, Westminster Confession, uh, chapter one, uh, section seven, it says, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So let me break that down to summarize that in a real simple way. Scripture is clear enough, right? It's not some mysterious (laughs) arcane tome that requires some sort of advanced degree to get at. That doesn't mean, this is one of my pet peeves, it doesn't mean that you don't need anything outside of this particular thing in front of you to make sense of this thing, right? The logic, the laws of non-contradiction are, we have to understand the law of non-contradiction to even understand and make sense of what the Bible says. You have to be able to read in order to read the Bible. You have to be able, someone had to translate it into a language that you can read or hear and understand in order for you to make use of the Bible. So that's why it's talking about the due use of ordinary means, right? The Bible came to us and the immediate, uh, the immediately following section here is the section about the original languages and how it's important to translate it. And so those two things are not disconnected thoughts. The Bible came to us in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic and mostly in Greek in the New Testament, right? Most of us do not read Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. Most of the people listening to this podcast are not competent, myself included, to sit down with a Hebrew Bible or a Greek New Testament and just read it as though it was English. And even if we were, somebody had to produce and publish that Greek New Testament or Hebrew Bible that we're reading, right? None of us is sitting here with the original scroll, scroll of Scripture reading it. So these ordinary means do not somehow invalidate the fact that the Scripture is clear or I might say accessible. Uh, or the technical term is perspicuous, right? Perspicuity. Oh, yeah. That does not invalidate that. And so we have to understand if we're going to talk about the scripture as the rule of faith and practice, you know, I don't know if you've ever played one of those board games or something. The the one that comes to mind, I don't remember the Cones of Dunshire or whatever it is in Parks <laughs> and Rec, it. yep. right? It's like this in it's like this incomprehensible game that that like nobody really understands the rules to. And right. uh, like, that's not what we're talking about with the Bible, right? Uh, uh, one of those uh, tropes that happens in a sermon that just drives me nuts where the pastor is like, all right, so here's what the scripture says. It says, do not kill. And let me tell you what that means in the Hebrew. It means do not kill. Like, I think that's a really overdone trope, but it's true. Like, you don't have to right. have like an advanced degree in ethics or, a you know, a, a background in Hebrew uh, casuistic law to understand that when God says do not kill, that he means like don't don't needlessly kill, don't unjustifiably take life. Like there are nuances, there's elements. It takes pulling in other parts of scripture to bear on that, to understand it, right? And that's the work of exegesis. But there's nothing particularly um, special uh, or that requires advanced training for someone to look at that passage in Exodus 20 or the parallel in Deuteronomy that says, do not kill. Right. And if you just read that, you might think, okay, that means no taking of life anywhere, except then you just read a little bit further and it gives you all of the penalties for what happens if you do kill. And some of that is that you lose your life. So now you, you very, right. it's very clear that the prohibition against killing cannot be universal. It can't be a 100% universal prohibition against killing, but it's got to be prohibition against killing in a particular type of context, right? So that that's not a move or a mechanism or a skill 
that requires any real advanced learning. Anyone who can read can read a couple chapters of Exodus and realize that that's, that's the reality of it. So we have to understand that although, yes, training is important, training and understanding the language is important, and somebody has to have those advanced degrees and advanced skills to be able to bring that to us, the scriptures are clear enough for the average reader once it gets to them in a, in a medium that they can understand. Once it gets to them, there doesn't need to be a lot of additional thought, additional like right. additional mining the depths of it. Even something like the Trinity. If Amen. you if you go to a simple basic understanding of the Trinity, that God is somehow there somehow is one God and yet there are somehow three persons that are not each other but are the one God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Now we can go right. much further than that. We can go into much greater depth explaining that, and we can draw those principles and that doctrine from the scripture to very, I think, very deep levels. I think deeper than most people would realize. But that doesn't mean that the average Christian who reads John one and realizes, yeah, there's the Word, and the Word was God, but the Word was also with God. So we got these two persons who are the one God, and then it doesn't take much of a stretch to get the Holy Spirit and understand that in there as well. That's that's what I'm talking about. So even though perspicuity, strictly speaking, requires um, the doctrine that's being understood from Scripture to be related somehow to uh, what's necessary for salvation, and then I'd say necessary for basic Christian living, even though that's when we talk about perspicuity, that's what we're talking about, right? It's uh, the things that are um, necessary to be known believed and observed right. for salvation. So it's not just related right. to, it's not just related to like, how do I get justified? It's also what needs to be observed for salvation in the broader sense of how do I now live a life of faith and obedience after I'm justified. But those things are clear. You don't need to, it's, I don't know how else to say it. It's might sound really yeah, smug, right but like, it's not that difficult to read the Bible and understand what it's saying. There are, there are levels and layers that you can peel back and understand, and that comes with reading the scriptures over and over again. The other thing I'll say before I kind of kind of take a breath here, when the divines are talking about due use of ordinary means, one of the ordinary means that I think people don't realize is in view there is the, the, the proclamation of the word on the Lord, especially on the Lord's day. But right. things like other Christians who have more advanced learning or more advanced capacity in understanding and plumbing the depths of scripture, appealing to them and going to them and asking for them to teach you and to help you understand. That's part of the due use of ordinary means. That might be a podcast like this. It might be a book like Joel Beakey's Systematic Theology. It might be the Westminster right. Confession. Most often it's the the pastor that you sit in under every Sunday who's expounding the word for you and is preaching the word of God to you. But that is part of what we're talking about when we say the rule of faith and practice is perspicuous, is that if you are diligent to make use of the means that are available to you, whether that's a, a, a learning or study, or whether that's a person who's done that learning and study that you're not able to, that's what we're talking about here. Right. Man, there's so many things. How much time do we have left? Four or five hours? Like negative 10 minutes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much that I would love for us to talk about as a result of what you set up there. But uh, so let me say this, just in case like somebody's listening to this and they've never heard these words before, like perspicuous just means plain to the understanding or like, yes. especially because of it's, it's clear. It's like on the face. Right. So like, that's the beauty of the scriptures is that what we're saying is that, uh, let me put it in my own perspective. I'll never be as smart as John Calvin. Right. And yet 
what we have, what you've been saying is that the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds to understand what the Bible tells us because it's God's word. And so no matter who we are, no matter what kind of intellect we have or training we have, that there's something, there's like kind of this base level. There is this kind of standard understanding that the Spirit gives to us so that we might be saved in that. And I want to quote from Thomas Boston in his works, volume one, chapter three, because it's exactly what you said. And here's what how he writes it. Here's how he summarizes everything we've been talking about. He writes, quote, with respect to all things necessary to salvation whether for faith or practice, it cannot be denied, but there are portions of the scripture very obscure, which possibly are not rightly interpreted even to this day, but in such things as necessary to salvation, they are clear. And in this respect, it hath been said that the scriptures are as in depth, wherein a lamb may wade and an elephant may swim, end quote. (laughs) Do you hear that? Like, I love that. This idea of like, you know, depending on like your your proclivity to understand certain things or even your personality that God's going to give you, the understanding that is clear, that is, here's what's necessary to live a life under salvation and to basically satisfy everything that James requires in terms of here's what faith actually looks like in its works. But beyond that, whether you're an elephant or a lamb, here in this book, here in this self-disclosure is everything that you need for your circumstances, for your personality, for your life itself. God in his kindness has done this for us. And the scripture actually claims this for itself. Like perspicuity is like the scripture's middle name because it says like the scripture teaches that it is a lamp. It is a light, like like Psalm 119. Like this is a lamp unto our feet. And the apostle Peter himself says like the scripture is a light. It is a prophecy, a prophetic word. Like it illuminates what is dark. So like here we find the absolute distillation of wisdom for all aspects of our life. Here's what I'll say in terms of like something that I'm experiencing right now. I've said this before because I just like to reference this. You know, I'm studying for an examination that is like over several years. It's a series of tests. And one of the things that's been impactful for me that I've just learned over and over again is that like tests are by work, but of course, like salvation is by grace through faith. And so like, it is amazing to me. I get, I get owned or pwned or like humbled or whatever word you want to use every day when I take, I'm in the mode of like taking practice questions for this exam. And I can't tell you, I'm at the end of studying and I take these practice questions and I get absolutely owned sometimes. And I think, I honestly think to myself, how amazing that grace, that like salvation is not by passing some kind of test by not like knowing or having to know something or exemplify that you somehow achieved a certain level of knowledge, but that God in his infinite wisdom, because of his grace through Jesus Christ and the application of everything that Jesus Christ accomplished on my behalf, applied through the spirit has said, you passed the test, right? There's nothing that you need to know. So it's an amazing thing that in a world where we're used to having to perform that God would give us something that says that I've done everything that's required. And this rule now of life and faith that I give to you is not somehow that you might try to figure out obedience for the sake of trying to comply with some kind of rules that have been set forth absent or disconnected with the life of God. But that what I'm saying to you is that when you are saved, this is the way that a saved person lives. Yeah. And it brings you both an abundance of life 
an enjoyment of the time here and the time to come, but also it gives you peace and harmony with the Godhead itself. Yeah. And so I think that that's something that we tend to underemphasize. It's as if, like you said, that the scriptures are 7, 10, 12, 22 ways to live a really good life now where you'll be happy. And what God says is like, nah, this is like, I was going to say like, nah, bro, nah, bro. <laughs> like this is, this is the way to not only be at peace with God, but to love God, to please God and to be at harmony with him. Yeah. Are you ready for me to just take the tone of the podcast <laughs> to a very silly place that will get me made fun of probably? Yeah. Listen, it's, we're drawing to the end, right? So it seems appropriate that we would do this. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know why this image is sticking in my head. I've never seen this movie in entirety, but there's a scene in a movie that, that I think exemplifies what we're talking about. Have you seen the movie, The Princess Diaries with Anne Hathaway? <laughs> <laughs> haven't you um, haven't? No, I haven't. I, I laugh only because like my movie... Like yeah, you haven't even seen Ghostbusters. Thin. So I haven't so, seen Ghostbusters. The synopsis of the movie, as I understand it, because again, I have not seen the entire movie, is that Anne Hathaway is sort of a regular girl who lives in America. And through some some turn of events, it turns out that she's actually the the next in line for the throne of some obscure Eastern Bloc country or Eastern Interesting. You know, Eastern country. And so there's this sequence where she's meeting with the queen of this country. And it's one of those like funny training montages, but she's learning all the etiquette of what it means to, of what a princess does, what the queen does. Like, how do you sit? Mm. How do you wave when you're in, in a crowd? How do you fold your, all this different etiquette that she's supposed to do. And one of the, the reason that this is coming to mind is there is nowhere in the movie that that I'm aware of where she is at risk of no longer being the heir to that throne. Mm. She, there's no Amen. point where they say, if you don't get this etiquette right, then you will not be cor- or coronated as the princess or the queen of this country. Instead, what it is, is you're already royalty. You're already the one who is next in line. You're already the inheritor of all of this. But now that you are, there are certain expectations and certain ways that you live. You are a princess. Now live like a princess, right? And what the Bible says to us is that for those who believe in the name of Jesus, he has given us the authority to be called the children of God. We already Mm. have that authority. We're already called the children of God. Now go and sin no more because that's what children of God do, right? When he he speaks to the, um, the woman caught in adultery, you know, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. Your faith has made you whole, go and sin no more, right? That's the pathway. That's the pattern. So so if we can keep that image before us as we think about the scripture as the rule of faith and practice, and rather than being some obscure, you know, some obscure set of rules, unwritten documents that that govern our life in these sort of like etiquette ways, like in this Princess Diaries movie or whatever, other than... Uh, uh, Rather than that, we have a clear set of moral expectations that if we are diligent to read and understand them, they will show us and they will through the spirit. The spirit will change us through that to become and to, to exemplify that. Not perfectly, not in this life, but but we are making progress towards that day when we will be transformed and fully look like our Savior. That's what we're talking about when we say it's the clear rule of faith and practice. It's there, it's clear, and God is invested in making us look like Jesus. That was the whole purpose of our salvation. Right on. Right? To glorify 
and enjoy him forever. And the scripture is the place that we get our marching orders and we understand and we're told and taught what it is to glorify and enjoy God forever. That's what we're talking about. That's why this is critical for the Christian to understand. Right on. And because we're like at the beginning of the year, I think it might be helpful to say like the reason why we want to invest ourselves in the scriptures is not because if we read it every day, we somehow feel like we have some kind of claim right. to superior righteousness, but because it's, a, it's, it, that's Ephesians 4.1, right? Like walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so if you don't feel that way, we ought to pray that God would propel us back into this instructional manual, so to speak, yeah. because not that we get some kind of sense of even pride in obeying it or pride in spending time in it, but because we find that it gives us both breath and life that it, it because it is the word of God, we yeah. just want to hear that word all the time. And like you and I have said, like there's nothing, there's almost nothing better in this life than just becoming so familiar with it that it becomes like muscle memory. Yeah. And that's a wonderful thing. And again, that's an spirit, a, a spirit empowered thing. But it's something that we also come to God saying, like, I want to be invested in your word. Yeah. So if you're starting the year thinking, you know, listen, this is the year that I want to get back in the scriptures, like, then that's a noble undertaking and you ought to do that. But understand that that inclination should come from the sense of just wanting to be in communion with your Savior, who has already done everything that's required. And so because of that, draws us into this relationship with him where we want to hear him speak and we hear him speak in the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah, amen to that. Well, to wrap up our episode, want to remind you we are running a contest right now since we talked about those figures in our life who can help point us to and educate us in the deeper things of God. We are running a contest for a copy, a free copy of Adonis Vidu's new book, which is called The Divine Missions, An Introduction, published by Whipton Stock. So that contest, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash 273. And there's one of those modules where you can share the episode with a friend, like us on Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we'll draw that winner at the end of the month and we'll get it shipped out as soon as we can. Again, in this case, the contest is a bit by works, but again, yes. to reiterate, salvation is by grace. It's true. Through faith. Also, little known fact, I think we said this last time, Adonis Vidu, he actually wrote this book as a result of hearing our series. <laughs> yeah, that's his, That's how he figures out what he wants to write a book on. So you should expect a book on Perspicuity of Scripture from Adonis in like, I don't know, a couple weeks. Seems like the pace. <laughs> and in addition to that, we of course are part of, you know, Tony and I are just like two voices and that's it on this podcast. But there are so many people that listen. There's some people that are part of this family, part of the Reformed Brotherhood, brothers and sisters from all over the globe. And we're so thankful for those who participate. It's a, it is like a family. It's like yeah. a little family, like micro family. And so there are some that give in various ways. And one of the ways that people give to us is through Patreon, which is a way of actually giving financial support to cover the incidental costs of this podcast, which actually makes it free for everybody. And we had somebody else join that family, that little family this week. And that was brother Nathan. And of course we're so thankful brother Nathan for your support. Yes. And I just want to say, I can't give out his email address because like we actually we get to see the email address, but it's like one of the most spiritual email addresses I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. So I'm just going to say that. So um, Brother Nathan, thank you so much for giving. And of course, if anybody else is inclined after they have fulfilled the responsibilities to give to the local church and thought, you know what? 
I'd like to make sure that the Reformed Brotherhood, this silly little podcast, continues to support the gospel, continues to proclaim all of the things that we talked about in terms of the scripture being the rule of faith in life. If you're interested in that, you can just go to reformedbrotherhood.com and it will direct you to the place where you can give. And thank you. We're thankful for everybody. And it's, it's always humbling. So let's continue to do this together and make sure that we have Christians all over the globe going back to the scriptures, not to Tony and I talking, but back to the scriptures as the only, the superior rule for faith and for life. Jesse, I don't think I could have said it any better than that. So rather than muddy the waters, I'm just going to say until next time, honor everyone. Let's love the brotherhood. (laughs) 